Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back. This is episode number four of the official Your Conflict Coach podcast. As always, my name is Hannah, and I'm your conflict coach. So I was talking to some of my listeners this week, and something they all mentioned was the fact that collaboration as a conflict style is the most logical option. It makes the most sense most of the time. So why is it not our instinct? Why is that not our instinctual reaction, our natural reaction? And My answer to that is that collaboration involves finding a way to balance between assertive and cooperative. Assertiveness requires you to stand up for the goals or needs of yours that are at stake in the conflict, while cooperation requires you to work with the other people involved and reach a solution that works for them as well. Handling conflict in a constructive rather than destructive way requires both assertiveness and cooperation, ideally from everyone involved. So basically collaboration involves working with the other people involved to figure out a solution that meets everyone's goals, satisfies everyone's needs, and honors everyone's interests. And when done well, Everyone, including you, including your team or you or your family, whoever it is that's on your side of the conflict, everyone can get what they want while also keeping negative emotion and damage to a minimum. But when you're collaborating with others in a conflict, the primary concern should be to satisfy both sides and solve the problem at hand. It's highly assertive and highly cooperative because the goal is to find a win-win solution. Both sides have to help each other and themselves come out with a resolution they feel good about. There's really only one disadvantage of collaborating, and it's that it takes a lot of time and energy and effort to achieve a resolution in this style. If you think about it, the desired outcome is a win-win, and that doesn't come easy most of the time. People typically have to work through several possible or potential solutions before agreeing on something that works for everyone involved. Typically, though, people do experience stronger relationships after a conflict when they use the collaborating style. So typically it's worth it because finding integrative solutions and learning about other people, merging perspectives, gaining commitment, and improving those relationships are all benefits of collaborating in conflict, and they can all result in stronger relationships among the people involved. However, it is hardest to collaborate when emotions are high. So, naturally, the conflicts that could most benefit from collaboration are the hardest to approach in a constructive way. But why? It's a universal concept. The more emotional you are, the less logical you are. We've all seen it play out over and over and over again in ourselves 
in our kids, in our friends, in our spouses. But why? Because emotion and logic cannot chemically coexist in the brain at the same time. In 2012, there was actually a study done that showed that human brains use alternating neural pathways for emotion and logic. The study kind of compared it to a seesaw or a switch. When your emotions are high, the neural network for logic is repressed and vice versa. If you're doing math or doing your job and you're really trying to figure something out, you're thinking very critically, there's a very logical problem that needs solved, a database problem or a task-based problem, then if a friend or a significant other came to you in that moment, it would be really hard for you to switch gears and have an emotional conversation with them about something very serious. So when your emotions are high, the neural network for logic is repressed. And when logic is high, the neural network for emotion is repressed. And this switches back and forth according to which pathway is triggered. So when our emotions are high and one of our triggers have been activated, our ability to collaborate effectively or to handle the issue logically is repressed, forcing all of our decision-making and our instinctual reactions to pass through the filter of our emotions rather than being processed logically. That's also why when we think about a conflict later, we think of things we should have said that would have been better or smarter or less damaging. We can see the conflict more logically and maybe see where we were wrong or realize something that they said that didn't actually make sense that we thought made sense at the time. So when we think about the common hot buttons or triggers from last week's episode, and we remember that we ask the question, why does this make me so mad? It becomes a lot more evident how those things can produce such an intense reaction in us. But if we want to look deeper, we can ask, what makes something a trigger for me in the first place? What is it about that thing or that person or that action or that word even that makes my emotions take over? that represses that logic and triggers that emotion. The most common type of trigger that causes conflict between people is identity triggers. So I remind clients all the time that the most triggering thing people can say or do is something that threatens our core identity. But most people have never really thought about what their core identity looks like or what that means. And they especially don't associate it with any conflict that they're in. But there's a, we call it the three circle exercise. And I did it in one of my very first conflict resolution classes that I took. And it really helps with this. And you can do it physically on paper if that helps you. Or you can just do it in your head or come up with your own variation. Really, however, but the concept is that what we're essentially going to do is take a blank piece of paper and put a circle in the middle. And this circle contains the three or maybe four or five things that you consider most important in terms of who you are, your identity. For example, a lot of people will put their religious beliefs here. 
Um, a lot of people will put things like good friend or mother or family man, good son. They can also be descriptors like smart or athletic. Um, there are some professions that typically play a really crucial role in who you are as a person, like teacher or nurse. People typically put those in the circle. That doesn't mean you have to. But it should be the parts of you that you wouldn't give up for anything else. Those are the things that are going to go in that central circle. That's your core circle. Then we're going to draw a wider circle around that one. This new one contains the secondary tier of your identity, things that make you who you are, but aren't quite as important as those things in the middle. You can draw as many more circles or rings around this as you want. You can broaden it as much as you want and build out as many more tiers to your identity as you want. The important things to remember are that one, most of this will change and fluctuate and shift throughout different seasons of your life. But the closer you put something to that core circle, the more permanent it should feel for you. And two, this diagram can contain anything that you want it to, anything that you feel is part of your core identity. And three, most importantly, the closer something is to that core circle, that is the closer it is to the core of your identity, the more triggering it will be when that thing is threatened by someone else, even if indirectly. The more our identity is tied up in whatever conflict we're in, in the conflict at hand, the more personal it's going to feel, the more it's going to feel like an attack. When you think about that, it makes sense, but it's not something we usually consider. So knowing that, we can also kind of double check our identity diagram once we have an idea of what we think our core identity is or what we know our core identity is. And we can think back to some of our most emotional conflicts that we've been in and kind of check and see if we can see the correlation between how those conflicts triggered one of the things that we've put in one of those core circles. And if it doesn't match up, then maybe ask yourself if there's something missing from your core circle, something that is really crucial to your identity that you haven't considered being part of your identity. It definitely gives you stuff to think about, but I hope mainly that triggers make a little more sense, knowing that it all depends how rooted that conflict is in the things we consider most valuable about ourselves. And although I won't go into too much detail here because I don't want to exceed my expertise or cross any professional boundaries, but occasionally we'll react emotionally to things not because of an identity threat, but because of learned triggers. And learned triggers can come from negative or traumatic experiences or can just be things we picked up from parents or people from our childhood. But these are also important and can be much more complex to address. And the advice I give in terms of these types of triggers is just remember that we all have parts of us that we feel others don't understand. And we tend to hold those pieces of us closer than any other parts of our identity because we feel that we have to protect those damaged or seemingly unexplainable parts of us. But other people have these too. And just understanding that 
can go a long way in being able to give others the benefit of the doubt when they act illogically. And it can help us give ourselves grace when we do the same thing. And my goal in discussing this is to kind of help you identify what these triggers are for you, maybe what causes them and how you can see them coming so that you can avoid escalating conflicts and damaging relationships. But if for any reason you can't or shouldn't or aren't ready to identify the roots of these triggers, instead, you can also look at what your instinctual reactions to that trigger tends to be and start there. Sometimes behaviors can be easier for us to analyze and correct than triggers. So if we self-reflect on what our reactions tend to be when we're in emotional conflict, highly emotional conflict, we can get a better idea of which conflicts were the most triggering for us and work backwards from there. But if we're talking about behaviors or reactions, the way we react in triggering conflict, the most important thing you can take away from this is that peace does not come from avoiding conflict. Peace comes from avoiding destructive reactions. And the reason avoiding conflict is so common is because people don't know how to control their emotional reactions enough to believe that there's an option other than avoiding the conflict altogether. Instead of just avoiding the destructive reactions and choosing constructive reactions instead, we tend to just avoid the conflict because reacting constructively seems so impossible when emotions are high. Sometimes it can be hard to tell whether or not an emotional reaction is actually destructive. Because just expressing emotion doesn't immediately mean that you're reacting in a damaging way. However, there are some very common destructive reactions. So I want to run through some of those. And maybe you guys will relate to some of them and be able to recognize a pattern in your instinctual reactions and behaviors. So there are two types of destructive reactions. They can fall into one of two categories, either active or passive. And that seems pretty self-explanatory, but I'm going to run through some examples of each kind because typically, not always, everyone is different, but typically people will favor active reactions or passive reactions. And when I read through some of these examples, hopefully you'll be able to get an idea for how you typically react to these emotional triggers. So some active destructive reactions, for example, arguing aggressively for a position, arguing for the I to the point where the we is completely overlooked. Another example would be voice raising using loaded language ridiculing the ideas that others are presenting or using sarcasm, demeaning others, obstructing or retaliating against others, even just trying to get revenge. It's also an active destructive reaction. 
Then, of course, on the other side of that would be passive destructive reactions. This can look like avoiding, ignoring, just acting distant, acting aloof, pretending that you don't know the conflict exists. Maybe giving in just to prevent any further conflict. It's essentially accommodating. Hiding or concealing important emotions. Emotions that, if expressed constructively, could help move the conflict further towards a resolution. And one of the most common passive destructive reactions is dwelling on past confrontations and shaming or guilting yourself into escalating the conflict. And as I've said, these reactions, they are destructive. And at some point, they should be removed from your tool belt permanently. But let's also not forget that the reason we employ these reactions is because our emotions have been triggered and the neuropathways in our brains that allow us to process things logically have been repressed. When this happens, it takes emotional intelligence, self-control, understanding, and most importantly, practice to be able to recognize that and retrain your instincts to employ constructive reactions instead to handle conflicts collaboratively. And that's a process. And for a lot of us, it's a lifelong process. Again, it's not something we will ever necessarily master. But it's important because relationships matter. And we don't want to damage those relationships if we don't have to. Right? At the end of the day, we want to live peaceful lives. We want to have peaceful relationships. And as I've said before, and will say several times again, conflict is inevitable. We can't live conflict-free lives, but we can approach conflict with a collaborative mind. We can try to recognize our triggers and our instinctual destructive reactions and figure out how we can shift that switch back to logic and work together with the people in our lives to find solutions to these conflicts that work for everybody. And remember, peace does not come from avoiding conflict. Peace comes from collaborating and avoiding destructive reactions. That's all I have for you in this episode. I truly hope you learned something today. And even if you didn't, I want to remind you that sometimes unlearning things is just as important. And that takes time. So I leave you with this. What's one thing you can start to do better today? As always, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Your Conflict Coach with two H's. You can also email me at Your Conflict Coach with two H's at gmail.com. 